Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Victor Kumar. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Boston University, where he also directs the Mind and Morality Lab. His primary philosophical interests are in ethics, cognitive science, and evolutionary theory. And he is the author, with Richmond Campbell, of A Better Ape, The Evolution of the Moral Mind and How It Made Us Human. And we're going to talk about that book today. So, Dr. Kumar, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, so uh, morality from an evolutionary perspective. My first question would be, why is it that in the book you adopt a gene culture coevolution perspective? Why not just genes or just culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you're right that in the book, we don't focus just on genetic or biological evolution. We take up this idea of gene cultural coevolution which I think is one of the most important ideas in evolutionary theory over the last 20 or 30 years. And the reason it's important is that it's not just genes that evolve, cultures evolve as well. Just like genes, cultures vary across individuals and groups. They are transmitted to the next generation and they can impact fitness. Sometimes having some culture allows you to survive and reproduce better than people with other cultures. And that's what it, in human history, led uh, culture to evolve in a Darwinian way, in the same way that genes do. But the big part of gene culture coevolution is that genes and culture co-evolve with each other. Genes evolve in a cultural environment and culture evolves in a genetic environment. So one of the famous, famous examples of this, uh, this is popularized by um, uh, Richard Boyd and Pete Richardson, is that uh, humans are unique among mammals in having the capacity to, some of us have the capacity to, to digest lactose beyond childhood. So this is a genetic adaptation, but it only occurred in response to cultural evolution. Yeah. Some groups had developed the ability to domesticate goats and sheep and cows. And uh, that meant that they had all this available calories in their milk. And so there's a selection pressure on genes to um, allow us to make use of this cultural innovation. And so what the book argues is that the same thing is true of morality. The morality is not just in our genes. It's also in our culture as well. That morality has been a part of culture for a very long time. And our, the genes and culture that are responsible for human morality have been co-evolving together for perhaps millions of years. Mm -hmm. And how would you explain, for example, the evolution of human altruism? Because that seems to be a very contentious topic among evolutionary theorists, both the ones that are more biologically minded and the ones that adopt a more gene culture coevolution framework, like, for example, Herbert Gintis, Joe Henrik and others. Uh, and also some of them add group selection to the mix and others don't really accept it. So, yes. I mean, what do you think is the best way of understanding how human altruism evolved? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I think there's been a long-standing um, idea in the literature, which is that there's a tension between altruism and natural selection. Mm -hmm. Natural selection favors survival of the fittest, but altruism seems to involve reducing your own fitness to help others. So there's a puzzle about how altruism can evolve. And the view that we take in the book is that uh, 
many of the theorists in this area are right that there are multiple ways in which altruism evolves. One way it can evolve is by benefiting kin who share the same genes as you. Another is that it can benefit yourself actually, because helping other people allows you, gives you the opportunity to cooperate with them and benefit personally from cooperation. But we also think that people like Gintis and Bowles are right that morality, uh, that altruism evolves through uh, group selection as well, especially once culture is on the scene, as they argue. Because once um, we have a culture that um, encourages conformity and punishing people who step out of line, then being altruistic can actually benefit you. And so culture matters here in this way, but it also matters in other ways too, because um, uh, a culture, an altruistic culture can evolve and be transmitted, not just through our genes, but because cultures that cooperate uh, groups that have a cooperative culture, an altruistic culture, can um, propagate more than groups that don't have that altruistic culture, in part because they do better in terms of securing resources, but also they are worth emulating. Other groups see that altruistic cooperation, see that it's successful and emulate them. And that's the way in which culture can spread, not just through your descendants, but also through transmitting culture to other groups. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's get into the core of the book, because when trying to understand how our moral minds evolved, you refer to three main ingredients, what you call core moral emotions, core moral norms, and the core capacity for open-ended moral reasoning. Starting with the moral emotions, um, what would you say were the ones that were already present in more ancient apes and from which we can start this evolutionary account of the evolution of the human moral mind. Yes. So, yeah, I think if you're going to give a, an evolutionary genealogy of morality, you have to start thinking about our closest living cousins, the great apes, and mm -hmm. thinking about the moral traits that we share with them. And I think the, the moral traits that we most clearly share are moral emotions, not all of them, but moral emotions of sympathy and loyalty. Mm -hmm. So sympathy means feeling compassion or concern for others. And loyalty is more focused. It's like emotional bonds of connection that you have with your friends and people in your coalitions within, within your group. Um, so these, you know, the primatological studies seem to be pretty clear that uh, other apes have these emotions. And it's what allows them to uh, do things like share food, um, protect each other from predators, um, also engage in some amount of cooperative parenting. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting, you know, it, it seems to be not just apes that have this. Many other animals have this as well. Uh, wolves, elephants, dolphins and whales. Uh, these capacities for sympathy and loyalty may be quite ancient because they are shared with apes, but also with other social mammals as well. Uh, well, in that case, it wouldn't necessarily be like uh, a phylogenetic thing. What I mean by this is that it could also be convergent evolution, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to say, ah, it must be that the ancestor of wolves and apes and elephants and so on had this yeah. trait. It could have evolved it, and it, it likely did evolve uh, separately. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so it's a it's a convergent trade as well. But it it's it's unclear um, how far back the trade goes. I mean, it may be possible that a very ancient primate ancestor of humans and apes, um, humans and other great apes, had these moral capacities, and then they were lost or reduced to some extent in some other primate species that had become more solitary, for example. Um, but uh, you're right that uh, the fact that a trait is shared with other animals leaves open whether it is was shared by the common ancestor or convergent, evolved multiple times in different lineages. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the major ways we differ from our uh, ancestors and closest evolutionary cousins like the chimps and bonobos and perhaps if we want to add it to the picture, gorillas as well, uh, in terms of our morality? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, um, we think that the moral mind that's in humans has three elements, moral emotions, moral norms, and a capacity for moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. So we think that apes don't have moral norms in the sense that we humans have them, and they also don't have the capacity for moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. But even if you stick with the first element of the moral mind, moral emotions, we argue that humans have a richer set of moral emotions. Humans have emotions of trust and loyalty. Uh, sorry, excuse me, trust and respect mm. that other apes don't have. And it's because we had to, humans had to engage in more complex forms of collaboration to survive than other apes did. So humans um, had to cooperate for the sake of foraging and hunting and scavenging and child rearing and complex forms of warfare that mm. they needed more uh, richer, uh, different set of moral emotions in order to um, collaborate in more complex tasks. These are the emotions of trust that allow us to cooperate as partners over long periods of time and respect that allows us to treat each other as equals. You know, in great apes, it's common for there to be a dominance hierarchy where there's an alpha and they're dominant to other, other, other apes. Mm -hmm. In humans, at least in ancient times, maybe not so much anymore, um, there has been more equality and respect, mutual respect is this uniquely human emotion that undergirds human equality. Uh, and we also have some reactive emotions that you mentioned in the book, right? right? Like guilt, shame, resentment, and indignation. Yes, we call these second order emotions or reactive emotions uh, because they're, they're not emotions that you directly feel um, for another person or their behavior, but um, they're a reaction to another individual not expressing more basic emotions properly. So if another individual is not expressing sufficient sympathy or respect, then you might feel um, resentment or anger. Or if you are not expressing enough of those things, you might feel guilt or shame. So these are another set of emotions that also distinguish humans from their closest living relatives. Mm -hmm. And if these set of emotions, the collaborative ones and the reactive ones, trust, respect, guilt, shame, resentment and indignation are not present even in our closest relatives, the chimps and the bonobos, does that mean that our common ancestor from around seven, eight million years ago or so 
uh, also didn't have them? I mean, this, this comes back to your question earlier because it's possible that that ancestor did have them, but uh, that chimps and bonobos lost those traits over mm. the last six or seven million years. Because um, they so were exposed to different uh, selective pressures. Different selective pressures, different um, environments that led to them no longer engaging in the same types of mm. cooperation that the ancestor did. I do think that that's a real possibility, but it's unlikely. And I think it's because, um, <clears throat> well, you, one of the reasons why humans, as opposed to other apes, have such large brains, large, dense, flexible brains, mm -hmm. is because we needed to be smarter to operate in a more complex cooperative environment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the evidence, and since our ancestors with chimps had brains that were similar to the size of modern day chimps, I think it's likely that they were not engaging as complex cooperation as our human ancestors were. Mm -hmm. Would you say that all of these emotions are, because it seems they are part of our evolved repertoire, that they are innate? Mm. Yes, I do think they are innate, but that is a, that's a term that one always has to use carefully because okay. it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. So for some people, innate means inflexible, rigid, fixed. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I do not think these emotions are innate. The emotions are innate in the sense that they are uh, not learned on the basis of experience. They're mm -hmm. unlearned. And that means they are, uh, some people, I think, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Jesse Graham say that this, they are a first draft of the human mind. Okay. Um, and so they're unlearned, but just because they're innate in that sense does not mean that they're rigid. In fact, human motions are adaptively plastic. We, they evolved to be flexible in response to different material and social environments. So innate, but flexible. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, responding to different environmental cues, for example, does that mean that uh, in certain contexts they might not be present or are they still part of the psychological repertoire of the individuals of a particular society, for example, but they do not express themselves in the same way? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question that helps, I think, us get clearer about this issue. So it is possible, perhaps, that in some developmental environments that are extremely impoverished, that you might have individuals who don't develop the moral emotions at all. For example, mm -hmm. someone who completely lacks parental care or peer interaction. They, they may not have the right um, support that enables that, the innate moral emotions to develop. However, uh, those are very extreme cases. What I mean when I say that the moral emotions are flexible is in particular with regard to their scope. That is, um, what range of individuals you feel sympathy, loyalty, trust, and respect for. Um, whether it's limited to just your kin or your community, or whether it extends beyond your community to people in other communities. That's the way, that's one way in which these moral emotions are flexible. This is not true of chimps and other great apes. 
their mo moral emotions are pretty inflexible. They're really groupish. They can only really experience sympathy and loyalty towards the people within their band, the, the chimps within their band. Um, human emotions are flexible in the sense that we can extend them beyond um, our, our, uh, our bands, our tribes. Mm -hmm. But do these emotions or can they vary cross-culturally? And are there emotions that might be exclusive to certain cultures? Because, I mean, there's at least mm. a view out there when it comes to human emotions or uh, human affective psychology proposed by people like Lisa Feldman Barrett and others who adopt more of a... I'm not sure if this is the correct term to use, but more of a constructionist view of human emotion. The, what yes. do you think of that? So I think this is a big challenge to the view that I've been presenting. I mean, it's a different view. It says that emotions are entirely constructed, uh, that there is no innate element of mm -hmm. emotions. And I think this is certainly true of some emotions. I mean, you know, there are famous uh, examples of this, <clears throat> like uh, uh, people in uh, more individualistic cultures experiencing emotions that people in collectivist cultures don't, and vice versa. That said, I don't, I do think, so I, I do think there are some emotions that are entirely constructed socially, but I do think there is some, this is similar to the Ekman style view that I know uh, Feldman Barrett criticizes, that there mm -hmm. are some basic emotions that are partially innate, but are absolutely affected by our socially constructed environments. Their expression, their scope is, 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 is varies across cultures, depending the, how, how much we feel these emotions, how they're expressed in our facial features and behavior, that varies, but there is something common For example, I don't think that there is any good evidence of any culture that doesn't experience sympathy in one form or another. Mm -hmm. It may be expressed differently across different cultures. It may be in some cultures narrowly circumscribed to your family and your kin. In others, it's wider. And maybe in those cultures, it's more diffuse and not really felt as intensely when it's expressed so widely. But I think all cultures experience sympathy. And also perhaps the way people manifest different emotions also depends on the norms of that particular culture, right? It's not perhaps that they don't feel them, but in, when it comes to expressing them or dealing uh, with people that cause a certain emotion to them in a particular context, I mean, perhaps they deal with it in different ways, depending on the norms that are part of the culture they live in. The, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. No, norms famously vary so widely, uh, vary, vary so much across different cultures, and norms affect the way we express our emotions, the way we interpret our emotions. So I think that you're right, that culturally variable norms can affect the way um, that emotions are expressed and interpreted. Mm -hmm. So, uh, before we get into the normative side of things, I mean, the core uh, moral norms that you talk about in the book, uh, mm. at a certain point you also mention inequality. So, what kinds of inequality do we find in ancient 
and traditional societies? Because at least as far as I'm aware, uh, most people in anthropology specifically agree that traditional societies tend to be at least more equal than more uh, modern industrialized and post-industrial societies, for example. Yes, that's true. I mean, I should say to begin with that this is a hard question, you know, because the, it's hard to, we don't have direct evidence to, mm -hmm. we don't have direct access to the societies that existed 100,000 years ago. We have to make inferences. And I think the way that anthropologists work is primarily by looking at modern day small scale societies, um, which is one source of evidence, but it's not unproblematic. Because it's limited course, also because probably they are not exposed to the same ecological conditions we evolved in, right? Yes, that's right. And they have evolved since then too. And they've also been exactly. exposed directly or indirectly to large-scale agricultural industrial societies mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. But that said, yeah, I think there's a consensus that these earlier ancestors were more egalitarian. And the reason for that is that after the agricultural revolution, where people started to settle in dense um, city states, this is a period of time where because the population was more dense, it offered the opportunity for elites to exploit people in subordinated social classes and tax them and enslave them. Um, <clears throat> so that's a form of socioeconomic inequality that is very recent in human history. There's another form of inequality that might well be very old, and that is the inequality between men and women. Um, it's possible that even in, I mean, even in modern day small scale, uh, small scale societies, there does tend to be a lot of inequality between men and women. Um, and it's possible that that is true of our ancient ancestors as well. What we think what we hypothesize in the book is that there was just a lot of variation. In some ancient societies, there was high equality between men and women and others, there was more domination, subordination. And that's, that can help to explain why human beings, both men and women are flexible mm -hmm. in the way we're able to, uh, to adapt to, um, uh, you know, in some societies, there is has been a increase in equality between men and women. And there's been the, there is an underlying emotional capacity for both men and women to adapt to that. So we think that gender inequality existed in the past, but it was quite variable across different places and times. That's very interesting because that goes in line with recent work by people like Manvir Singh, who I've had on the show recently, who suggests exactly that, that looking at the data we have and the evidence that, I mean, we didn't evolve in societies that were all, I mean, completely equal and even nomadic and non-hierarchical. I mean, that it varies across the globe and across different ecological conditions. And so that would point toward our um, evolved psychology being more flexible than perhaps some evolutionary theorists think. Yeah, I think that's very interesting and very plausible to me because the, the signature of human beings and human cognition is flexibility. 
plasticity, mm -hmm. adaptability. We are able to live in a wide range of physical environments, but also in a wide range of social environments as well mm -hmm. that are sedentary or nomadic or egalitarian or hierarchical. And so it makes sense that there would have been variation in human lifestyles in the past for that reason. Mm -hmm. So let's get into norms now. Um, what are norms? What functions do they serve? And particularly since we started with the emotions, what is the relationship from an evolutionary perspective between the moral emotions and the moral norms? Yeah, okay, lots of great questions. So emotions and norms are both similar in that they tend to motivate um, socially cooperative behavior. Mm -hmm. However, there are some differences between them. And the thing about norms is that uh, what they are is they are social rules, internalized social rules that lead us to have expectations about how others will behave and should behave, but they also ground a, disp a disposition to punish others for violating the rules. And that um, helps explain the differences between norms and emotions. Norms um, allow us to um, uh, cooperate in more complex ways because we can construct new norms much more quickly than we can modulate our emotional capacities. And they allow us to engage in more complex cooperation because they, because of their role in um, supporting punishment. If we, and this is something emphasized by people you mentioned earlier, Gintis and Bowles and Henrik and others, mm -hmm. that um, no, because norms uh, undergird punishment, they can enforce a set of behaviors across a social group and allow them to cooperate more effectively. Mm -hmm. Would it be correct to say that without emotions, there can't be norms, that the norms sort of stem from the emotions? Um, I do think there can be emotions without norms because our chimps and bonobos and other apes, I think have moral emotions without norms. What you're asking too is whether you can have uh, norms without emotions. And that's a good question. I, <laughs> I think it, it's possible that, you know, evolution could have produced creatures that have, that have these social rules without having the emotions. But as a matter of fact, that's not what it did in our species. In our species, the emotions came first, millions of years ago, and the norms came afterward once mm. culture began to evolve because norms are fundamentally uh, uh, cultural, mm -hmm. uh, cultural traits. They're culturally transmitted. Now, um, what we think is that this is, comes back to the very first question you asked about gene culture coevolution. We think emotions and norms have co-evolved with each other over human history. And it's so we've evolved norms that are pro-social in part because they help us cooperate, but in part because they resonate with our um, pro-social emotions. And also these emotions have become deeper, more entrenched and richer because they have, um, they've been reinforced by the norms. And so we have kind of uh, norms and emotions that fit each other. And just to give one example, uh, this is something emphasized a lot by Sean Nichols in his book, Sentimental Rules. Um, there are harm norms that resonate with our emotions of sympathy. Mm -hmm. Harm norms are a cluster of norms that tell us 
to help other people to refrain from um, refrain from assaulting or harm, hurting them in other ways. And part of why we have these norms is because we feel drawn to them because of our emotions of sympathy. And so that's one way in which uh, emotions, moral emotions and moral norms have co-evolved. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you talk about autonomy norms and fairness norms. Could you explain each of them? Yes. So we talk about a, a, a wide set of norms that we think evolve because they resonate with the basic emotions. Now, you picked out two of these norms. One of them is autonomy norms, which we think, you know, these are a cluster of norms that concern things like, um, uh, you know, respecting other people's freedom, not forcing them to do things. Um, and those norms, we think, have resonated with um, the moral emotion of respect. Mm. That's the this uh, autonomy norms and respect fit together. Now, there's another class of norms, which is really important in moral theory and moral psychology, which are fairness norms. These are, again, it's not just, I'm not talking about one norm here. I'm talking about a cluster of different norms that are things like um, having equal distributions of goods and resources, but also um, apportioning goods and resources in, in proportion to how much effort people put into a task. Um, there's different ways in which fairness norms are interpreted but we think that fairness norms evolved in part because they helped us cooperate and in part because they resonated both with the moral emotion of respect and this other uniquely moral uh, human emotion of trust that trust and respect together helped to shape fairness norms because they uh you know trust is what allows us to kind of apportion things equally and respect is the is the dimension of fairness that enables us to, you know, um, uh, do things like not violate people's autonomy, uh, to not do things like engage in force and coercion, which is a, which is a dimension of fairness as well. Mm -hmm. So the other core moral norms you mentioned in the book are harm, kinship and reciprocity. Could you tell yes. us about them as well? Yes. Um, <clears throat> So reciprocity, again, deals with one of the other uniquely human emotions. It's uh, uh, the emotion of trust. So reciprocity norms are things like, uh, well, you know, if you help me now, I'll help you later. These are the rules that we've developed in part because they fit with our emotion, the moral emotion of trusting one another. The other two sets of norms, I did talk about one of them a few minutes ago, harm norms, uh, norms helping people, not, not uh, harming them. Um, the other set of norms is one that uh, what we call kinship norms. It's one that I don't think pe people in Western moral philosophy pay much attention to mm. because they're, they're, I think, more prominent in uh, non-Western cultures, some non-Western cultures. These are norms that resonate with the emotion of loyalty. And so they're specifically about, they're not norms that apply to everyone. There are norms that apply to your family and your kin and your tribe. And so these are things like, you know, kinship norms are the reasons why you have a greater obligation to pay for your own child's education as opposed to the education of children you don't know. Um, or you have a 
a more stronger obligation to keep your promises to people that you know than people that you know people that are in your kin or your your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these kinship norms um, they've evolved. It's the same story as for these other emotions. They've evolved because they help us cooperate, but they also resonate with this uh, ancient uh, emotion of loyalty that humans have and that they in fact possess uh, share with chimps and other apes. Mm-hmm. Before getting into intuition and moral reasoning, I just wanted to ask you, because some of these norms and emotions, I mean, at least the names sound very close to the ones we hear in, for example, moral foundations theory. So mm-hmm. does the this framework that you present in the book connect in any way to the work by Jonathan Hyde and collaborators? Yes, absolutely does. I mean, we and we do discuss John, the work by Jonathan Hyde and Jesse Graham and their collaborators. Um, and they identify a similar set of foundational norms. You know, we're also inspired. This is there's a very old tradition in philosophy of thinking of moral norms or principles as being a multiple set. So we're also inspired also by people like W.D. Ross in philosophy, who came up with a set of prima facie duties that are, you know, a multiple set that are, it's hard to kind of reduce them all to, to one set of norms. Um, so, you know, there's some slight variations between us and height and W.D. Ross in terms of exactly what we think of as the basic set of norms or foundational norms or prima facie duties. But I think a more, a more fundamental difference between us and height is that height and Graham and their collaborators, they tend to think, they think of the moral foundations as, as innate. And we don't think that's true. We think moral emo- emotions are innate, but the norms are culturally evolved. So they're not part of our uh, genetically evolved psychology. Um, these, so you might think, you know, Height's got this view, moral foundations theory. And um, someone suggested to me recently that I, we should call our view gene cultural, gene culture plural, pluralism. To, to highlight that one of the differences with us between us and height is that we think the moral foundations are not all completely innate because the norms that uh, these different clusters of norms, harm, kinship, autonomy, reciprocity, fairness, are culturally evolved. They're in fact the products of gene culture coevolution as emotions and norms co-evolved with each other over hundreds of thousands of years. So that's, I think, the key difference between our view and Heights. Mm-hmm. What about moral intuition with what we have talked about mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to emotions and norms? I mean, what is moral intuition then? Yeah. So moral intuition has been a central topic of moral philosophy in recent decades. You know, it's, it's people have debated whether it exists, where it comes from. Um, <clears throat> what we argue in the book is that, is that it's, it's a kind of pluralist view because some people have thought, oh, intuition comes from emotion. And some mm-hmm. people have thought, oh no, intuition comes from unconscious rules. 
And what we say is it's both. Intuition is generated sometimes by emotions and norms working together, but sometimes just one or the other. And so intuition is in most cases, the product of our emotional reactions and our um, in, the inter, the inter, the rules that we have internalized from mm-hmm. our culture. Mm-hmm. So for example, when we have the intuition that uh, it's wrong for a doctor to sacrifice five healthy patients and give their organs, uh, sorry, sacrifice one healthy patient and give that person's organs to five people who need them. It's in part because we have this, um, we have these emotions that rebel. We think, oh no, sympathy, we shouldn't harm that person, we shouldn't violate their autonomy. But we also have these norms which say um, that um, it's wrong to treat someone as a means in that way. And so the intuition stems from both our emotional and our normative capacities. Mm -hmm. So what is moral reasoning then? I mean, Mm -hmm. because since we have our moral emotions and then also the rules we acquire or learn from our society, I mean, Mm -hmm. is there any space for moral reasoning to not be all about post hoc rationalization, for example? Yeah, yes. So so now we've come to the third, what we think of as the third major ingredient of the moral mind. We think the moral mind is moral emotions, moral norms, and a capacity for moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. So you're right that one of the most popular views among philosophers and scientists is to think that moral reasoning doesn't really do anything. You know, people engage in moral reasoning when they want to justify themselves to others, but it doesn't actually change their views. And it may be true that most of the time reasoning is rationalization. Even if it's infrequent, though, it's a really important function that reasoning plays that allows us to change uh, the content of our norms or how we interpret them. And over the long term can even uh, shape our emotional reactions too. So, I mean, one good example of this, and this is, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but this is something we pay a lot of attention to in in the later part of the book, is the way that many people have changed their minds about, um, Uh, people have become less homophobic. And I think that part of the reason is is through intuition and emotion. They've realized that someone they know or respect or admire is gay. This is a straight mm-hmm. person discovering that someone they know is gay. And, mm-hmm. and they think, oh, gosh, well, I don't want that person to be discriminated against. I don't think that person is morally deviant. And so they change their mind about that person. But reasoning is really important here, too because it allows us to generalize. Many people have said, well, if my friend or my cousin or my coworker is not morally deviant, then I shouldn't think that other people that I don't know are morally deviant because of their sexuality. And so reasoning here, it's like emotions and intuition provide a wedge, but then reasoning allows us to take that moral insight and expand it. So even if this doesn't happen very frequently, if it produces really momentous changes, reasoning is very important and is not just um, rationalization. Mm. Now, um, reasoning can take many forms. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's like factual reasoning. You know, I find out that uh, something about capital punishments uh, doesn't really deter crime. Mm. But sometimes it's... um, it's what we call moral consistency reasoning. And that's the example that I just gave. 
Moral consistency reasoning is when we're trying to treat like cases alike. We think, oh, well, if this person is shouldn't be harmed, then you know maybe other people just like them shouldn't be harmed for the same reasons either. Um, <clears throat> moral consistency reasoning is this ability that allows us to expand our emotions and norms into new places that we didn't imagine initially. And so that kind of reasoning we think is really important, really powerful. And that's why we think of that as really the central capacity that uh, undergirds moral reasoning in the moral mind. But when it comes to moral consistency reasoning and because of a sort of expression he used at a certain point there. So if I think about one person in a particular way and I should treat her in a particular way, then we should do the same for people that are like her. But the like her, isn't it a problem? Because yes. we, can, we can kind of reason other people out of their group where we include that particular person, right? Yeah. And I think this comes back to your challenge about rationalization too, right? You know, we can find some differences. You can always find some differences between individuals or between groups that allow you to stick with the status quo, to allow you to justify what you already believed. So I think this is a really interesting open empirical question. It's something that I've begun to research with one of my uh, colleagues here in Boston at Boston College, Leanne Young where we've been trying to understand what, um, what enables people to um, treat like cases alike and what, what leads them to say, no, these cases are different. Um, <clears throat> so it's true that this happens. So for example, pe people make special exceptions. They say, oh, well, you know, somebody who is um, anti-Semitic or racist might say, yeah, well, he's a special case, you know. Uh, this coworker that I know, he's one of the good ones, right? That sometimes happens, but and, and the thing is, though, the the opposite sometimes happens as well. Uh, one way that people change their minds is by being confronted with people who um, challenge their stereotypes about other races or ethnicities or about other about men or about women or about gays or straight people and they do generalize so uh you know if you think about the case we were talking about a few minutes ago there's been a huge change in attitudes towards gay people in the us and europe and other countries over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years and uh so you know, you raise this challenge. Well, maybe people just they they say, "Oh, this this is he's they're one of the good ones." Sometimes they do that, but we've seen that people have not done that. That they have that many people have discovered that a friend or a family member is gay, and then they have ex they have started to treat like cases alike and generalize this to other people that they don't know. Leanne Young and I hypothesize that one of the factors going on here is that people essentialize sexual orientation they think oh being gay is some it's you're born that way hmm. and so that that means that people in some whether this is true or not people are thinking this way they're thinking that uh, other people who are gay are gay for fundamentally the same reason 
because of their because of some natural capacity that where they're born that way. So that's why they lead. That's why they're led to treat the cases alike rather than separately. Um, but I, but to you know, to, to step back for a minute, I think it's a really important and interesting empirical question, and I would love to see more research on this to understand when people treat other when people treat cases alike, and when they pre- treat them differently. Because I think that's a really important thing we should understand in order to figure out the best ways to persuade people, um, and the best ways that people can discover. Um, important moral truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and also, wouldn't you agree that when it comes to understanding why people over a period of decades, let's say, change their attitudes, their social, moral, political attitudes toward minorities like homosexuals, other sexual minorities, racial minorities, and so on, isn't it an empirical question to try to understand why that happened? Because it might not have been through exactly moral reasoning, but through some sort of, I don't know, ecological, social, political, economic factors that played a role there, right? Absolutely. I, I, I'm 100% agreeing with you here. I didn't mean to say that emotions plus consistency reasoning is the only way or even the primary way in which people's attitudes have changed. It's no doubt a very complex multifactorial explanation. So just to come back to the case of um, changing attitudes towards gay people, another factor here has to do with the media and the way in which, um, Mm -hmm. for example, there's a way in which gay people have led the way in various parts of culture when it comes to, for example, uh, fashion and comedy and you know there's been TV shows that have prominently featured gay celebrities and I think one way that people have changed their mind is they've just been like oh it's so it's social media is communicating to me that this is socially acceptable so I should think it's socially acceptable mm-hmm. and that's uh, that may be a form of reasoning but it's not the kind of moral reasoning that I was talking about no. so and, and I think that uh, you know you pointed to other factors too. We've talked about reasoning, we've talked about media, but um, economic forces, um, political forces, I'm sure there are many. I think that when we're trying to understand large scale social change, it's absolutely imperative to acknowledge that this is there's going to be many factors going on. It's really important to study all of them. Yeah, I mean, because just One example that springs to mind very easily is that, uh, I mean, if we look into that sort of uh, approach that people like Steven Pinker have to the Enlightenment and how certain ideas influenced moral progress, for example, Mm -hmm. I mean, then it breaks down at a certain point because, for example, it it would be hard to understand if people have already reasoned them selves into including certain people into their moral circle, then why would it be the case that more recently, over the last decade or so, there have been the rise of extreme populist and political movements, for example, right? Yeah. So, yes, I mean, I think this is a really important perspective. So, on the one hand, it's true that over the last many decades or centuries, we have seen overall a, 
a decline in prejudice, discrimination, even oppression on the basis of race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Now, you're pointing out that there is this kind of backlash in recent decades. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a rise in Europe and North America and elsewhere mm-hmm. of uh, ethno-nationalist, mm-hmm. um, ethno-nationalist movements that in, in, in the West focus on white ethno-nationalism, of course. Now, I guess one thing I would say here is I don't think this is uh, this is unique to the early 21st century. I mean, I think you see this in the rise of fascism in the 1920s and 30s. Sure. I think that whenever you have um, relatively rapid moral progress, that is going to generate a kind of backlash among conservative uh, uh, traditional forces in society. And so... I think we're seeing a backlash night right now. Uh, we're seeing it, of course, in um, uh, in some European states like uh, Hungary. We're also seeing it in the U.S. Uh, with forces that are pushing back against the gay and trans rights movement that have uh, repealed Roe v. Wade and, other, and, and laws that permit access to abortion. Um, but I guess I think that... I guess I would want to save some of the ideas that Pinker is promoting and, and that I think are actually are some similar to some of the ideas that we have in this book. Mm-hmm. And because I think that, um, and it all comes down to thinking about social change in a complex multifactorial way. I think ideas are important. And I think that moral reasoning is important. I think that moral reasoning is especially important when it it's unfolds in the context of social integration, people living and working together. But it's not the only force at play. And there are reactionary forces. There are forces that seek to gain political power by preying on people's resentments. Um, These are also at play as well. So I think that, you know, maybe this is a little uh, simple, but I would say I think you can believe in the power of the Enlightenment while also believing that it's not the only force that's at work. Mm-hmm. Now, before moving on to other topics, because I also want to ask you about institutions and particularly religion, I mean, I just wanted to perhaps clarify or comment that, I mean, the reason why I usually, when I have people on the show, moral philosophers, for example, I push them so hard on these topics surrounding moral reasoning and moral progress is because I mean, uh, if we take into account things that we've been talking about, the moral emotions, moral norms, how they are internalized, and the intuitions people have, I mean, at least for me personally, I might be wrong, but there seems to be very little room for, uh, I don't know, reasoning really changing things that much by itself. I mean, I would perhaps look more into things like Uh, ecology, politics, economics, uh, social factors, and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But again, I I might be wrong. No, I I don't know that I disagree with you so much. I mean, partly I have focused on on, uh, moral reasoning scaffolded in our social environments, in part because of my disciplinary interests. I'm someone who is interested in moral philosophy and moral psychology. but I think, of course, that other people with different interests who focus more on economics or political science should 
identify other factors that are at play in changing. I, I would defend the idea, though, that uh, that moral the moral mind and moral reasoning, more specifically, is one important force. And I think that one reason it, to believe that it's important is that among these different forces that you've mentioned, I think it's one of the only ones that perhaps the only one that is biased in a progressive direction. Because I think that economic forces, for example, can pull in different directions. They can lead to progressive social change. They can lead to regressive social change. I mean, I think economic forces right now are leading America and other countries to um, fail to address climate change and climate injustice. Um, so I think specifically when you're looking at um, progress in a way that maybe we'll define <laughs> soon enough, um, that reasoning, socially scaffolded moral reasoning is really one of, one of the most important forces at play. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about institutions. Uh, what is the role that they play in human morality? Yeah. So this is another, you know, we earlier in the conversation, you were asking me about the differences between the morality of humans and other apes. And I was saying, well, we've got a richer set of moral emotions. We also have moral norms and moral reasoning. But another difference is that we have social institutions and other apes don't. We've got family institutions, political institutions, religious institutions. And these institutions, they're not just important on their own, but they shape our moralities. They produce what we call diverse institutional moralities. So mm -hmm. for example, we think there are some clusters of norms that are not so ancient in humans. They weren't present in our small scale egalitarian, largely egalitarian societies, but they did arise more recently thanks to hierarchical, modern hierarchical social institutions. So we have norms of hierarchy or authority that are distinctly human, that are not just distinctly human, but distinctly modern. They didn't exist in our ancient past. And so, for example, because we have family institutions that produce hierarchies between men and women, political institutions that produce hierarchies between elite classes and workers, um, uh, religious institutions that produce a hierarchy between uh, you know, priests and commoners, they create a kind of, because our moral minds are flexible, we can internalize these hierarchical norms and be, and, you know, in some cases, um, even subordinate ourselves because we think, uh, we have internalized these norms that create, uh, that justify different classes of human beings. Some people are supposed to have more power and authority and status and other people are, are supposed to not have mm -hmm. the same power and status. So that's one way in which institutions, family, social, uh, family, political, religious institutions have shaped the moral mind and the way in which we now, we don't, modern humans don't just have the evolved moral mind that exists in our ancestors 300,000 years ago. They have institutional moralities, moralities that are wildly diverse across cultures because they're shaped by our different institutions. But the way these institutions shape morality or moralities, is it primarily through their internal norms or not exactly? 
I think it is. So institutions are complex social constructions. They involve a set of norms, but they also involve things like a set of practices, rituals, mm-hmm. um, artifacts, ideologies. So I think um, the norms, but also these other elements of institutions can also shape our morality. So I think, for example, um, uh, religious rituals, can lead us to have reverence for things, mm-hmm. you know, shape our, our emotional reactions of reverence. Um, in addition, things like, um, uh, it's not just norms, but I- ideologies, ideologies of, you know, who really deserves the fruits of our, uh, of our society um, can influence our emotion and our, our emotions and our norms as well. Mm-hmm. So, what about religion specifically? Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of role did it, did it play in our evolutionary history when it comes to understanding human morality? Yeah, you know, religion is such an interesting topic, and there's been a lot of work in cognitive science, evolutionary cognitive science of religion in the past couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that religion is very important in human history. And we think it helps solve a a really important puzzle. So let me tell you about this puzzle. So I, you know, our species evolved roughly 300,000 years ago, but um, it wasn't until about 100,000 years ago that we started to become what's called behaviorally modern. This is a period of time where you see an explosion of tools and technology in the archeological record You also see uh, the production of art during this period of time. Um, Starting 100,000 years ago is when humans, uh, our human species, leaves Africa, colonizes Eurasia, um, outcompetes and kills off other human species, and uh, ultimately colonizes the whole world. Mm -hmm. Now, how did they do that? How did they become behaviorally modern, spread across the world, kill off other humans. Um, a big part of the answer is that uh, this, is, this is a period of time where you see the evolution, the cultural evolution of no, new knowledge and technology. So there's a fantastic array of, of tools that are, uh, as I mentioned, that are evidenced in the archeological record of things like new fire hearths, miniature tools, new projectile weapons, Just to take one example, humans developed sewing at this, during this period of time. So Neanderthals, like us, used to cover themselves with animal pelts, but we were the only ones that used sewing needles to make seamed clothing, which offered more reliable protection from the elements. So it's this te- technology and the knowledge to produce it that is important in making us behaviorally modern. But why did we get all this knowledge and technology? That's the puzzle. And we think we have a solution to this. And our solution is that, is that it doesn't really have anything to do with our genes. It has to do with our culture. This is a period of time where you see uh, humans, homo sapiens living in more higher density groups compared to other human species like Neanderthals. And we think it's because it's at this period of time that the earliest social institutions evolved through cultural evolution. Um, these institutions allowed us to cooperate together 
in more complex ways um, because they allowed us to live together in tribes, not just our small band of people, but groups of groups that were geographically dispersed, but shared a common ethnicity and language. Um, so these tribes, there was more cooperation, there was more people to offer a safety net, engage in more trade with a wider range of individuals, but it also enabled what Joseph Henrik calls a larger collective brain. There were more people who could generate new ideas, improve upon old ideas, and recombine them in ways. And that's what um, enabled this explosion of tools and technology. But here's the thing. Religion was crucial here. And again, we're drawing on some, some work by uh, Joe Henrik and his collaborators. But we think that religion was really important because it allowed us to expand our moral minds. Religion has many functions. You know, there's religious beliefs about the supernatural. But one thing that religion does is by creating myths of a shared ancestry and gods that favor us, is that it allows people in the same tribe to treat each other as kin, as really part of the same extended family. And so it allowed us to expand our moral emotions so that we were experiencing not just toward people in the same band, but everyone in the same tribe. That's what allowed social institutions to function because of religious morality. And that is what allowed for the explosion of knowledge and technology 100,000 years ago that led us to become behaviorally modern. So religion and religious morality was actually crucial to our cognitive and epistemic evolution. Which is very interesting because that sort of runs counter not to the work produced by anthropologists, for example, because I never read anything like that in anthropology. I mean, a view against religion morally or scientifically, but I don't know, movements like neo atheism, uh, people who say that religion is just a mind virus and it's morally. Yeah regressive or something like yes. that i mean because yeah. it seems that there are there's very good evidence out there that religion did really play a very important role in human civilization and moral progress as well i i think that's right that there are these many conflicting views about religion and its evolution and i think you're right that our view seems to conflict with others it's important to note that we're arguing that religion was useful and adaptive at this ancient period of time. Mm. It's possible that, you know, many traits have been adaptive in the past, but are no longer adaptive and even harmful in the present. And it's possible that that's true of religion as well. That said, um, people like the new atheists tend to focus a lot on religious belief, mm. belief in the divine, belief in the supernatural, belief in the afterlife belief about what God requires of us. That's one aspect of religion. And I think the criticisms of religion gain more traction when it's focused on beliefs that appear to be irrational and sometimes harmful. There's another aspect of religion, which is not religious belief, but religious practice uh -huh. and community yeah. and ritual. And these two things can come apart. So for example, many modern Jews don't have a lot of intent, uh, firm religious beliefs, but they still are culturally Jewish because they engage in the practices and the rituals. And I think these practices and rituals and communities are continue to be very valuable 
because they bond human beings together and allow us to help each other and provide, um, um, you know, meaning for each other in, in, in the, in, in, they continue to provide, help us provide meaning for each other in this world. And so I think, I think the new atheists have a stronger case to make about religious belief. And I think they're wrong when it comes to this other major dimension of religion, which is religious practice and community and ritual. Mm -hmm. So we've already talked about moral reasoning and also the role that ideas might play, but what about moral philosophy specifically? Do you think that moral philosophers really can and do play a role in moral progress, for example, or at least in changing moral views? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that some some moral philosophers have clearly done, had a huge impact on the world. I mean, you, you look at um, British political theorists, uh, political philosophers in the 17th and 18th centuries that helped shape modern democracies. You think of Karl Marx, who uh, changed the way that many societies are organized for, for better or for worse. Um, and then if you also think about modern philosophers like Peter Singer, yeah. who, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about Peter Singer. Um, it's possible that he has advanced some views that are um, ableist and that discriminate against people who suffer from disabilities. Um, on the other hand, Peter Singer has probably has has done more good than any other living philosopher in terms of helping people to donate to charities that help people in the developing world, encouraged many people to become vegans and vegetarians, um, including me. I'm, I'm a person who, in, in part, inspired by Peter Singer to reduce my meat consumption, and that's um, a topic that I've, I've written about with my co-author, uh, Joshua May. So some philosophers have certainly made a difference when it comes to the world, whether good or bad. I think that <clears throat> there's many areas of moral philosophy that are thoroughly disconnected from the world. I mean, I think a lot of areas of metaethics um, have become academic debates in which philosophers are only speaking to one another and they don't have, it's become a cloistered conversation where it has no impact, let alone the public, it doesn't have any impact on other disciplines because philosophers have forgotten. They have failed to notice ways in which other disciplines can offer something to teach them, but also can can learn things from philosophy as well. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons interdisciplinary work is so important, to learn from other disciplines, but also to help them as well. I mean, otherwise the conversation, it becomes a kind of an echo chamber where we just talk to each other and um, don't provide anything of any social or scientific good. Mm. Do you think that it will ever be possible for us to develop a universal ethical code? Um, I don't think so. And I think the main reason is that it's been tried for 3,000 years and so far no one has succeeded. <clears throat> um, maybe it'll succeed in the future, but I think that um, human beings are just cognitively limited beings who, um, even if there is a universal code of morality. It's too complex and there's too much noise in the system for us to 
apprehend what it is. I think that we could do a lot better by giving up that ambition of trying to find the universal code or trying to figure out what the ideally just society is. Instead of trying to focus on what the best is, we should focus on the better. In what ways can our um, dispositions and character be improved? In what way can our societies improve? If we can figure out cognitive and social mechanisms, not just reasoning, but things that encompass economics and political systems that can lead to improvement in our societies, that's something that we have a better shot at. And the way to figure it out is by looking at the past, looking at what kinds of mechanisms have been effective in the recent past in generating moral progress or resisting moral regress, and to try to figure out some general principles that they don't tell us what the perfect moral agent would do, but they would tell us how to become better morals, incrementally better moral agents or produce incrementally better moral societies. I was also thinking about another thing, and please tell me if you agree with me or not, but isn't it the case that it could possibly be uh, both biologically and culturally impossible for us to develop a universal ethical code that everyone in all societies would follow just because it is the case that people have to deal across different societies with different ecological conditions and perhaps certain behaviors just not work in those particular conditions. So I agree with you totally here. I think it's a much harder argument to make. But, you know, there's an assumption among many philosophers that there is some abstract moral truth out there and we just have to get closer to it. But in fact, what I think you learn if you look at the evolution of morality is that, first of all, morality is fundamentally pluralistic. We have multiple set of emotions and norms mm -hmm. and there isn't any formula for what to do when we have conflicts between them. Yeah. Furthermore, and this is, I think, what you were highlighting, is that different cultures face different material and social conditions. They interpret their moral norms. Even if we all share a set of moral norms, we interpret them in different ways. We resolve conflicts between them in certain ways. And I don't think there is anything there. There isn't any fundamental moral capacity that we can all agree on, not any fundamental moral principle or norm, there's a multiple set that vary across environments and there isn't anything to converge upon. However, I think that there are some things, some elements of morality that we can come to agreement on. So it's not like we'll all end up in the same place, but we can all end up a little bit closer and cooperate a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So for example, I think that, you know, many societies over the last 150 years have discovered together that women are just as intelligent and just as capable as men, just as suited to performing any social role as men. And that this is something that, and there's still some disagreement, right? I mean, some people still think that women are better suited to child rearing and other people don't. You know, it's a disagreement that people have, but there is increasing agreement that women should be given the same opportunities for economic opportunities, educational opportunities. And even if we can't agree on everything and there will still be some differences, we can agree on some things and get closer to each other in different cultures and societies.
So uh, now that we're reaching our time limit, I wanted to ask you about specific moral issues, moral questions that you address toward the end of the book. So, for example, nowadays, when it comes to accepting in our societies people with minority identities, I mean, there's been lots of argument about these people from the left and the right clashing with each other. And one thing that is brought to the table by people that are more on the politically conservative side of the spectrum is that political correctness is a problem that harms society. Uh, what yes. do you think about that? Yeah, I think there is a kernel of truth there. I do think that people uh, of different political orientations, but including people on the left, have a certain kind of intolerance for people who disagree with them or don't hold what they regard to be the right views or who speak in ways that are not maximally sensitive to their moral concerns. And I think that if we're going to create more agreement and harmony and progress in society, we have to, people on the left have to be open-minded. They have to accept that some people who they disagree with might um, uh, might have reasonably come to different positions and um, that they that they will be counterproductive by um, by being harshly critical or can you know, canceling people who don't have all the right views or don't express them in the same way and one of the reasons that people on the left should be attentive to this is that some of the people who they take to be advocating for, people who are racial and ethnic minorities, are among the people that don't have sufficiently, from, from the perspective of people on the left, sufficiently sophisticated and nuanced views about things like um, gay and trans rights or social inequality. Um, so I do think that there is, um, I wouldn't call it political correctness, but I would say a kind of intolerance and censoriousness. There is a little bit too much of this on the left. However, um, I don't think that the left has a monopoly on that. I think that's common among the right as well. And I also think that, um, <clears throat> that uh, it's important not to to bend over backwards. I mean, you want to be open-minded and respect other people's views, but without compromising on your own views. So for example, I'm of the opinion that we live, that I live, I can't comment as directly on, on, in, on, on Portuguese society, um, but uh, that, I, that, we, that I live in a deeply transphobic culture where trans people are subject to intense stigma and discrimination and suffer from a lot of pain and distress because of this. And as a result of that, that makes me think that, hey, even if I hear some good argument for why, seems like a good argument maybe, about why trans women shouldn't be, shouldn't be included in women's sports, I shouldn't take it too seriously that I should kind of um, uh, be rationally biased towards the interests of people who are stigmatized and oppressed and um, uh, and even if I'm open-minded to people who are against trans activists, 
still my fundamental sympathies are with people who are oppressed rather than the people who are think that the response to their oppression has gone too far. Mm -hmm. So one last question and putting perhaps moral principles aside because people can agree or they can disagree, but assuming that we all agree that things like injustice and inequality, I mean, we should try to, uh, they are problems and we should try to address them. Do you think that the theoretical framework you present in your book could help us uh, devise ways of addressing those issues? I think it does, but I do want to come back to something, a theme that you touched on earlier, which is okay. that I think that there is a there is a multitude of approaches that is important. So, for example, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that you think um, approaches that focus on economics or political science might be important. I think that um, some people who are um, who engage in more activism uh, uh, on who participate in on the ground social movements to agree that I don't have another perspective on moral progress and resolving injustice and inequality that I don't think is any less valuable than mine. So I, I do have a perspective, but I don't think it's the only perspective. And I think that mm -hmm. has to be held alongside different perspectives, different strategies for trying to achieve these aims. My view is that um, social inequality depends a lot on a social structure in which um, people in privileged groups occupy decision-making roles within institutions and people within marginalized groups don't. And I think that one, this is what we argue in the book, that one really important route for um, creating a more equal and just societies is to create more diversity in, 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 in leadership roles in our social institutions, in political institutions, economic institutions, even religious institutions. And the reason for that is when you have people who come from diverse backgrounds, diverse races and classes, they have greater knowledge about the ways in which people from their communities are disadvantaged. And they're in a better position to shape our institutions in ways that um, can address injustices. And I think in particular, they can shape institutions in ways that put the rest of us in situations where we can better understand. Uh, pe people are more privileged, who, who I take myself to be you know, privileged on the basis of uh, gender and um, socioeconomic class, can put us in positions where we, um, circumstances where we are engaging in people, engaging with people from different backgrounds and better understanding the the struggles that they face and the injustices that they face and gain a better appreciation and motivation to end them. So I think reasoning has to play a role here. I mean, this is back to our theme. Reasoning about, I think people, it's really important for people to understand um, the injustice that other people suffer. But I don't think reasoning on its own can work. You need to also change social structure. You need to create a society that is more integrated, where people from different backgrounds interact with each other, but also one where people 
that uh, the social structure is one where um, that is more democratic in the sense that people um, from different social groups are participating in shaping our institutions and making decisions about them that impact the rest of society. And that can feed that can feed into each other. Changing social structure can change our minds, which can help change the social structure. And the best kinds of um, the best examples of moral progress are ones where we see a kind of positive feedback loop that where our minds and our social structures are positively impacting each other. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, you would support a multidisciplinary approach here, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in, in, in academia today, it's so difficult to be a master of anything more than one or two disciplines. And my you know, main interests and expertise lie in moral philosophy, moral psychology, cognitive science. And I try to learn about other fields too, like, you know, burgeoning interest in political science, for example. But, um, uh, but I think that because of my limited interests and expertise, I inevitably won't understand other important levers and strategies for enacting social change that people who have different backgrounds will people who are engaged in activism outside of academia, but also people in academia who are, you know, better trained in sociology or economics. Mm -hmm. I think that um, moral progress it very rarely is it driven by individuals. It's usually driven by communities. Yeah. And I think that it's a, we need to develop the same kinds of communities in academia. Not in ways where we exclude people from the right who have different views from us. We, we need to be open-minded, but we need to um, have communities where they are fully interdisciplinary and people with different expertises in different subject domains can really speak to each other and inform people. And, um, and, 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 you know, I talked about earlier how this massive revolution in human history, a hundred thousand years ago was produced by humans developing a bigger collective brain because of our social institutions and religious morality. And we need to do that today as well. We need to increase again, the size of the size and cohesion of our collective brain, if we're going to address major problems of inequality and injustice. And in particular, if we're going to address the huge disaster of climate change that will unfold in the coming centuries. And one part of that role has to be played by philosophers and other academics who can um, help us create a larger and more cohesive collective brain. Mm -hmm. Great. So the book is again, A Better Ape, The Evolution of the Moral Mind and How It Made Us Human. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. Dr. Kumar, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Uh, yes, well, uh, you can find papers uh, linked on my website. Uh, you can buy my book from uh, the OUP, Oxford University Press website. Um, there, uh, some of my newer work is with Joshua May writing about uh, meat consumption. You can find some of our writings uh, on WBUR. I have some essay, an essay about our book in the Boston Globe. And, uh, you know, Google is your best friend.
Thank Very you so much, Ricardo, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. No, likewise. And thank you so much for writing the book. It was a great read. Thank you for that. And if you're open to that, I would really, I would really be happy to have you on the show again somewhere in the future to talk about I would love to. other love to aspects other of things. your work. Yeah, that would be great. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Laguerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Linkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolfkin, Tim Hollis, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Ugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, and Max Belby. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafinia, Kian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.